Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. With the launch of her debut novel, Who's Afraid?, author Maria Lewis immediately established herself as a bestseller. Dark, engaging, funny and riddled with pop culture, and that's just the author, Who's Afraid? is the first in a series of five books to soon be released. Featuring a biracial heroine for our time who just happens to discover she's a werewolf, Who's Afraid? owes as much to the world of Buffy the Vampire Slayer as it does to Maria's own heritage and experiences as a journalist and living her life between Australia and the islands of New Zealand. Hello, Maria. Thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Explain to me why you've acknowledged at the end of your book that you were raised on a diet of serial killer stories <laughs> and monsters by your grandfather. Largely because I was. Um, my granddad, so I, I grew up in New Zealand, uh, which you mentioned, grew up in Arrowtown, which is basically a street um, just outside of Queenstown. It's a very small town that essentially hasn't changed since the gold rush. And, um, and that's where I grew up. And my grandfather was a cop in New Zealand for, for 20, 25 years. He was uh, head of the homicide squad. He was head of undercover cops and he worked in the drug squad as well. So some really, some really heavy shit. And, um, he, when, you know, he was raising me and tucking me into bed at night, he wasn't telling me fairy tale stories. He was telling me stories about him being a cop and, he was telling me stories about monsters, I guess probably because those were the ones that I really responded to. And it was kind of the perfect location for it because where we lived in Arrowtown was on a, a deer farm and you, the view out there was, they have actual seasons, you know, and so it comes to spring, it, it's like melting, everything's melting and dripping and beautiful and flourishing. And it's winter, it's like literally snow-capped mountains right outside the window and snow everywhere to the point where you know, in really bad winters, would have to dig up the pipes and thaw them so we could flush the toilet and that whole situation. But he would tell me werewolf stories at night when he would tuck me in, and I thought they were really clever and original at the time. They were actually ones he'd stolen from movies that I realised much <laughs> later. But he would tell me those interspliced with his cop stories, and he'd point out the window and say, see, on that snow-capped mountain there, you can see a wolf, and I'd always be squinting out trying to work out whether it was actually a wolf howling or just a grey rock in the distance and that kind of thing. And so... That was always something that was very ever-present in my childhood and something that I was always very interested in. I remember going to see, um, the first movie I ever saw was Jaws, but the first movie I ever saw in a cinema was Beauty and the Beast. And it was for a girl in my class's birthday. And so we all went in horse and carriage to the Queenstown Movie Theatre. I remember not being super into that movie at the time, but really loving the bit where wolves attacked people and being like, oh man, like if the movie was just all wolves attacking people, like that would be my jam. And so I kind of feel like it's really no surprise that this is, this has ended up being the area that I'm interested in, the field that I'm interested in. But you, you do, you seem to be someone who lives their life on their sleeve. And I say that quite literally mm. because we've just talked about serial killers and yeah. you have a quote yeah. on your arm <laughs> of Hannibal Lecter. What brought that on? Um, well, it's Thomas Harris's Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and Red Dragon. I'm being very specific because I think those first two books are some of the best ever written, best crime fiction ever written. Third book, um, Hannibal has some serious problems from a feminist standpoint. Uh, spoilers if you haven't read it, so you know, go ahead and read that. But 
I reread those books all the time and like the first one's 1981, second one's 1989 and they have not aged, they are perfect. So I loved those books and I think um, obviously Sansa Lamb's movie is a kind of perfect movie. So the quote um, that you're referring to is, I have, um, it puts the lotion in the basket, <laughs> tattooed on my arm, um, inside a little candy heart, because I like that juxtaposition of um, something very sweet with something very that, evil. That is slightly dark and disturbing. Yeah, but that's kind of, that's kind of my jam, man. Like, I, you know, I have um, a pop culture sleeve of tattoos and it's got Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but it also has like, you know, some Sailor Moon tattoos and then it also has a werewolf, but also has the Powerpuff Girls. That's, that's kind of how I roll. But it's interesting what you say about like pouring, uh, pouring yourself into the book because there are definitely, it depends how well somebody knows me. Um, that I could say like the people that really know me and the people who have, I've been really close friends with for, you know, 10 plus years have known me since I was a teen they pick up very different things from the book than people who don't know me because obviously aesthetically the first thing people say is oh you have colored hair and so does your heroine right mm. but at the same time i'm like well if i had brown hair and the main character had brown hair would people say the same thing probably not because brown hair is pretty normal and colored hair is more normal actually than it was when i first started writing the book but you know i change my hair about every two months <laughs> to be honest so it's an interesting thing but the things that people pick up are very interesting and they're usually not the personal things. The personal things for me, like for instance, there's a, a scene in the book. Um, it's about two thirds of the way through and Tommy is at, uh, I guess essentially what you could say a crime scene. A woman has been killed brutally by a werewolf and she's walking around the dead body and she's inspecting it. And that is actually based on a real life experience I had of the first dead body I saw at work as a crime reporter at 17 working at the Gold Coast Bulletin. And that's not like a cute story that people want to hear about like how you fit autobiographical elements into the book. Like there's a, a moment where Tommy um, steps on a piece of the woman's throat and it gets stuck to her shoe and she like wipes it off her shoe really quickly and then goes and vomits in a bush. And that actually happened to me. Whereas the other stuff that people might you know, immediately associate with me is, is not me at all. It's, it's elements of, of a world and of a character that I've tried to create and tried to introduce sparingly so that it can, it can really spread out and filter out over, over the five book series. How does that experience with death and an understanding of death inform your writing? Um, well, I think it's interesting. It should be noted that, so I've been a journalist for 12 years um, and I was in police rounds for about three, three and a half and being naive and young and not realizing that you can actually write about the things that you loved, like pop culture. As <laughs> soon as I realized that at about the two and a half year mark, I was like, oh my God, you can write about film and movies. And I was on the Gold Coast, which was the perfect place for it at that time. Cause a lot of productions were coming here because of the dollar. It took me a year to get out of police rounds because like I said, if once you get trained up in it, they, they don't want to let you go. Um, because it's, it's a hard field, but I guess the thing that's interesting is, so I always felt like I'd had an, a, quite, uh, a quite clear understanding of death and human violence because of my grandfather and because of the stories that he used to tell me about crime scenes and about cases that he was on in his book that I read, you know, when I was in high school and things like that. And I'd always been interested in true crime stuff. It's always been something that I've been very fascinated with and kind of like a guilty pleasure for me, I guess, because it's, it's one of those hobbies that people feel they have to keep in the closet. Like you can't be an open and out murderino. You've, you've got to be like quietly into that stuff on the side. And 
writing about crime was awesome because it was I was able to like connect with other people who were doing the same thing and who were interested on maybe one particular piece of evidence or one alibi that wasn't holding up. When it comes to my writing, I think um, I think this, the thing that maybe informed it, and I don't know, I can only go off the reactions that people have had to particular death scenes in the first book. Um, I, I don't know how they're going to react to the second because there's a lot more death scenes and Who's Afraid 2, um, which is just about to come out any moment now. Um, but they've experienced them very viscerally and I think that's maybe because I've seen them and because I've been part of it and well the descriptions are very sharp they're not indulgent that's probably the one thing I I, I felt when I read it which is you get a very vivid sense of the reality in which you're writing well it's death IRL isn't really an indulgent thing it's just kind of a mess I mean it depends on the circumstances obviously um but it's it's not like a quiet peaceful thing it depends obviously like I'm talking about all the horrendous times that you know that's generally speaking the way I experience things but even um there was an incident where I covered a story where a father and son had gone missing on a fishing trip on the Tweed River and um they just disappeared and everyone thought it was really strange and they ended up being found uh four days later and their bodies got fished out of the river and I remember sitting on the banks of the river and it was just myself and uh and the photographer who wasn't taking pictures because they hadn't covered the bodies or anything like that. And it was just like the local area water police and just looking at the bodies, which, you know, they had drowned. It's a relatively peaceful way to go. And just thinking there is, there is no nicety to death in any way, you know, nobody, no guarantees, no, like, Oh, I've been a good person. So I get to go nicely or I get to look okay on the other side. It was, seeing a drowned body was a completely different experience, especially a drowned body that had been in the water for a few days to seeing a car accident or seeing someone who had been shot. Um, in terms of the death scenes in the book, my, it's, it's my emotional experience to it as well as um, a few analytical things I picked up. But I also have a, a really good friend of mine who's a doctor and I worked with him on the death scenes to make sure that when I was describing blood splatter or organ placement and stuff like that, that it was actually accurate. Like there wasn't just a random spleen on her shoulder, you know what I mean? Like that the smells would be authentic to the particular scene that places would be, things would be in the right place. And that, you know, if you were any kind of medical professional, if you're reading that and it wasn't just a dead body scene, it had some sense of reality to it because I think the best fantasy um, is fantasy that has groundings and reality has elements of truth you know characters that feel like real people not characters who are completely perfect and fully formed and you know where they get to go on a journey and the reader goes on a journey with them so to find that reality you took your you took yourself over to Scotland and spent time living over there to help you set the scene for Tommy's lifestyle Uh, you went and also lived with people who were studying arts which makes me feel that a journalist going living with art students is a step backwards because you should already be used to experiencing poverty (laughs) yeah well the thing that's interesting is in scotland um the government pays i mean we'll see how this goes post-brexit but i don't i don't know how much stuff is actually going to go through post-brexit because it seems like they're like oh god what do we do okay let's just like hit pause on this whole situation but in scotland um they pay for you to go to university. So the thing is, uh, or they pay for you in university, I should say, not that they pay you to 
go to university. But the thing we should, is, we should also note at this point that Scotland was anti-Brexit. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. Didn't actually vote for they, Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, they were also anti-Trump. So Scottish people know where it's at. Right. Um, but basically, because they pay for university, what ends up happening is people go to university for things they love doing rather than things they can get a career in. So there's like 70% of uni students are art students. That's a made up statistic. But a lot of the uni students are art students because they love the arts and they're not necessarily thinking, oh God, I'm going to be in a lot of student debt. I need to get a career out of this. They're just thinking, I love this thing, so I'm going to do it. So originally Who's Afraid was set in Australia um, and I had been shopping it around for a while and I had met Matthew Riley through working at the Daily Telegraph and we had coffee a bunch of times and we're talking about books and I was getting advice from him and he was being very generous with his time and kind of... Matthew Riley, the action author, one of Australia's biggest international booksellers. Yes, definitely. One of the world's best-selling action writers, probably. Um, He writes the kind of books that, you know, stereotypically they sell them as like, shit, your dad would like. But it's like... And an enormous geek as well, which is fantastic. Oh, Matt, hugest hugest Back to Future and Star Wars fan, I think, I've ever met. And I've met a lot of huge Back to the Future and Star Wars fans. But so he was kind of mentoring me through the process, which was really, really lovely of him, very generous. And one of the first pieces of advice, as he said about Who's Afraid, was that you need to move this from being set in Australia and New Zealand to being set somewhere else. So keep the New Zealand element because he said Australian publishers um, don't care about that kind of book. They will only publish books set in Australia if it's a Tim Winton family drama set in the outback and international publishers find it too unrelatable for it to be set in Australia. And and this kind of book and genre, you need to sell it international. And so I was always keeping the New Zealand element. That was never going to change to me. I just needed to find somewhere else to set it. And I'd been looking at a few places. He suggested Transylvania, actually, um, which I pushed back against because I was like, you know, it's a place that's famous for vampires. You, you, this is a story about werewolves. You'd go somewhere else in Romania, um, essentially. So I eventually picked Scotland, and I wanted to make sure that um, it was set not somewhere where we've been before. A lot of urban fantasy is set in like one of four places, New York, LA, London, or a small town where everybody knows each other's name. So I didn't want to set it in a small town. I wanted to set it in a city, but not a city that everyone's been to. So Dundee was kind of perfect. It's Scotland's third largest city. It's kind of like the Gold Coast of Scotland in a way because it's got a big party culture, but it also has a really rich history. It's one of the birthplaces of journalism in the world, strangely. So it really was, I mean, almost predestined. It was the perfect place for you oh, to arrive. It was so perfect, yeah. And one of the things I was actually quite happy, like my research was pretty much on point um, with everything. There was a lot of reworking and a lot of language stuff, actually, that I tweaked and like local terms and things like that. Um that I adjusted to make it feel, you know, more familiar. But Tommy had always been an art curator in the book. She'd always been someone who that like art was her passion. And so it just worked out in this beautiful, uh, happy accident, I guess, that I ended up setting it in Dundee, um, which is such an artistic city. Tommy Grayson, as you've just said, is an art curator. And the book opens with her interviewing um, an artist. <laughs> yeah. And she's Desperately trying not to punch him. Mm. Now, you work in the world of entertainment yes. reporting. Yes. Come on. How many times have you sat before so a filmmaker? So many times. <laughs> <laughs> so many times. That was um, kind of an amalgamation of a lot of interviews I've done with um, largely musicians that I haven't necessarily wanted to interview, but we had 
centimeters to fill on a page you know um when i worked at the daily telegraph i covered the daily entertainment pages so you had three pages to fill every single day um of entertainment stuff which is like you think oh yeah like there's heaps there is heaps but you also they really like it to be localized they want it to either be sydney specific or australia specific and so that makes things a little bit harder. And then if the editors like one of your stories, they'll take it from you and put it up front in the paper. So then you have a hole to fill. So you're doing a lot of interviews with um, a lot of interviews with musicians usually were the kind of amalgamation of this particular artist you're talking about, Will with one L. Um, and that whole sort of scene was just kind of like a, a little bit of a funny tongue in cheek situation. I've, I've never wanted to punch someone, but I have been very sitting there, very tired listening to, you know, a 21 year old who's just signed their first record label and they're telling you all about the world and their problems and, you know, how significant their song is about dancing in a club on a Friday night and how it's going to change, you know, the way we view music and the human experience forever. So it was, um, it was kind of an amalgamation of that, I guess. Generally speaking though, because most of the people I interview are filmmakers um, or creators in that kind of regard, whether it's screenwriters or directors or actors, and usually those people are super excited to talk to anyone about their art in the same way that I'm super excited anytime I get interviewed because I'm like, oh, somebody cares about something you made up. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of an amalgamation of that, if you will. You have had the opportunity to meet many legends of the creative arts as well as many of the leaders. So people like Ridley Scott. Yeah. What have you actually learned from those experiences that may have informed the way you work and the way you write your books? It's a good question. Um I think for me, the thing, like the people that I really admire are people that have a lot of shit going on. Um, in terms of writing perspective, the ladies that I want to try and emulate are people like Charlene Harris and Michelle Mead, who have multiple series on the go, who have a really broad scope in terms of what they're doing. Like they're writing a fantasy series and then they have a science fiction series over here and then they have like a dystopian YA and then they have like an erotic adult novel over there. That's kind of what I want to do. I have a crime fiction book that I'm finishing up at the moment, which would be part of a crime series. Um, and it would just be three books, kind of kind of standalone sort of type thing. And that largely comes from having a lot of story ideas, but also the people that I admire doing a lot of stuff. You know, Ridley Scott, um, that was an awesome interview and he was a, a really fantastic person to speak. Probably one of my favorite interviews actually ever. He was absolutely insane to talk to because Alien is my second favorite film of all time. Um, and he's someone that I really admire because he's, you know, he's 80, man. And he's still like pumping out a film every two to three years and going to parties with Russell Crowe and all that kind of stuff. And so those are the kind of people that I'm really fascinated by. Um, the kind of people that I'm interested in are the ones who really have a hand in the product that they're making. They don't just direct a film and then, you know, bugger off. They write it, they produce it, they edit it, whatever it is. They have a really clear vision and they get themselves as involved as possible to try and see that vision delivered. You know, people like Ava DuVernay and Lexi Alexander and Edgar Wright, who Taika Waititi, who, who write and edit and produce and are just skilled across the board. And they all have a very specific view on the world, but yet they're playing at the Hollywood um, top level. Mm. You know, when you look at work that say even Lexi Alexander's done, you know, who's really come from a very different, unique background of yeah. MMA fighting. Oh my God. Um, to then be writing Punisher Wars, working on Punisher Wars. Directing Warzone. Outland, you know, yeah. like that was the last time I, I spoke to her. She's like, oh yeah, I'm off to Scotland to go direct an episode of Outlander. And I'm like, 
well, that's amazing. Like that's, that's brilliant. You take a female action director and have her doing Outlander. That makes so much sense to me. And then the woman who directed a bunch of Outlander episodes, Anna Forrester has just gone off and directed Underworld Blood Wars. So I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense, you know? And Outlander is such a, a strong female lead. Mm. It's, a, it's very female driven. Written by a woman, um, starring a, a woman front and center, but also that series, like I really loved Agent Carter, the TV series, but it didn't have a single female director its entire duration. It was a story that had a lot of feminism on screen, but not a lot of it behind the camera. And a show like Outland, a thing that makes me really happy is it has almost exclusively female directors, female EPs, female producers, female set runners, all that kind of stuff. I think that's, that's what really happens. Like it, what really matters, I should say, if you believe about a thing, you kind of got to put your money where your mouth is in that regard. And, you know, if you're a show about feminism, it mm, is really like crucial that you have feminism behind the camera as well. If you're a show about representation, like say Queen Sugar, Ava DuVernay's show, she is representation behind the camera. You know, she is people of color working with her from every level, from the highest echelon right down to the people who might be the drivers. There seems to be a struggle within the genre of, say, for example, urban fantasy and even things like time travel and so genre TV, genre film, genre novelizations, where women aren't treated very fairly, mm. both from a creative point of view, but also within the characters themselves. But let's just look at the creative, which is that how important was it for you to have your own name, your real name on the front cover of your book? given that people like J.K. Rowling and many others yeah. were almost forced or at least suggested they not because it might turn away male readers. Yeah, 100%. Well, there's there's a stat, um, and I'm not sure how, the stat statistic was a few years ago. It was relevant a few years ago, 2013, so it's a little old. But it was something like uh, 62% of male readers won't pick up a book if it's clearly stated that a female author um, is it's written by a female author on the front cover, right? Which is a stat that booksellers know. And there was that discussion with my publishers um, about whether I wanted to take a pseudonym um, because who's afraid? Yes, it has a very strong female character. It's essentially a book about feminism and werewolves and there's a female character on the front, but it's also a story that appeals to a lot of men because it's got those elements of stories that appeal across all genders and genres. It's horror, it's fantasy, it's comedy, it's romance. It's all of those things wrapped into one. It's action, it's venture, it's, it's monsters. And I think that's one of the reasons it has a lot of male readers too is because it, it covers all those bases. Um, and so there was that discussion, do I want to keep my real name or do I want to have a pseudonym? And I had to seriously think about that because – the number one thing for me is that as many people could read the book as possible, right? And the way you would do that is by having a pseudonym so that they couldn't tell your gender. And it, it was a serious question because it was like, what's more important to me, making sure as many people can read this as possible or that I stand true on something that I really believe in. And that for me is, you know, if, if you're a woman and you wrote this particular work that I had that I wanted to stand beside it and be like, yeah, damn right. I wrote this. That's, this is my piece. You know, it's written by Maria Lewis, not Mario Lewis, you know? Um, and I completely understand, like, I guarantee you if JK Rowling had gone with, you know, Joanne on the front cover, we wouldn't be talking about Harry Potter now because there's a story about a 12 year old boy wizard. And there would have been a lot of people who wouldn't have picked up that book if they knew it was written by a woman. Um, same with C.S. Pacat, her amazing fantasy series. Um, a lot of people probably wouldn't have picked up that 
either if they knew it was written by a woman. Robin Hobb, you know, is a similar kind of, there's so many examples. And I 100% applaud and appreciate women who have taken the pseudonym because I'm like, good on you, man. That's smart business. And that's a way to turn the sort of like ingrained sexism of bookshelf, you know, politics in on itself and, and utilize that and milk it for all it's worth. For me, I was like, you know, this is a book about werewolves and feminism. Dude, it really doesn't matter what my name is on the front of it, because if you're a guy who's not going to pick up a book because it's written by a woman, you're going to get two chapters into Who's Afraid and be like, screw this, I'm out. You know, they're not the kind of people who are going to appreciate the book or like the book anyway. So what, why bother changing my name, you know? And also, I think if you if you want to impact real change, um, you you got to start somewhere. And I, don't, I will never take a pseudonym. I will always stick by that name. Even if I go into a crime series, usually that's a common thing is if you switch up genres, you might take a pseudonym. But, you know, that's that's my name. That's you you got to stand by a name. Has it actually hindered you? I don't think so. I think in the age of social media, it's a little bit harder to have a pseudonym. Um, I think a lot of people now would be like, oh, should I, you know, put a hyphened name or should I put a asterisk name or a dotted name or whatever? Um, and they'll decide against it because it's very easy to find out who somebody is um, through a quick Google search or a quick hunt down or a quick Wikipedia search. So I think that's why people are doing it less. I don't think people are doing it less because there's less sexism in the world or the patriarchy is like receding like the tide that it should. Um, I think it's more that it's just technology has evolved to the point where you, it's it's harder for people to hide. It's not to say you can't. I mean, look at Chuck Tingle. You know, it's like crazy. Like one of the biggest uh, personalities, I guess you could say, in, in literary fiction. Is it literary fiction? Dinosaur erotic fiction? But nobody knows who he slash she is. Um, so you can have some sense of mystery, but... For me, I just, you know, I didn't have time to be about it. I also don't think I could afford to. It's, I'm not like, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not someone that's known. I have to build up a brand and an audience and a following over many years. Um, and that's one of, being one of the things that's been really interesting is Who's Afraid came out January uh, 2016. I actually had to think about that, how depressing. Um, <laughs> and Who's Afraid 2 comes out January 17, 2017. And in that space of a year, it's been so rewarding to meet people who have actually read the book and watch a fan base grow from literally nothing from nothing. Cause I had no platform to launch off. There's nothing to um, sell me or um, I guess spruik me to urban fantasy readers. I'm not a celebrity. I don't have a celebrity platform to launch off. Like, you know, a lot of bestsellers do because they're, you know, an autobiography written by someone who modeled one time or whatever it is. Um, Urban fantasy, a lot of times when people have a book that hits, it's their fourth or their fifth or their sixth. And the industry is so tough at the moment. You really, like for me, I, I knew there was so much pressure on me to try and make a splash with the first one. And especially because it's a series and it's been, it's been really gratifying to watch that grow because now I think, okay, the second book comes out and there's people who already care about the story who will start reading it. And then hopefully when that the third book comes out, they'll grow into the third and the fourth and the fifth. And then that's it. <laughs> and then I take away their dreams and crush them. Yeah. Well, then, then I want to hear more about the merman. Merman. Oh. <laughs> and, and I can't help but think of a merman without thinking back to um, Cabin in the Woods. Oh, it was, I thought you were going to say Zoolander because usually that's the first. <laughs> merman. 
Water is the essence of wetness. Um, yeah, I love the Merman and Cabin in the Woods. Because it's, it's the, the ultimate payoff joke the best. for an entire oh, film. Oh my god, Cabin in the Woods. Don't get me started. In my top ten favorite movies of all time. Um, so the Merman book, it's called It Came from the Deep, and it's been shopping around with people for oh god. Not as long as Who's Afraid. I wrote Who's Afraid in six months and it took six years to get published. Um, it came from the deep I wrote as part of Nat No Ritmo, which is the worst acronym ever, National Novel Writing Month, uh, which is that thing they do worldwide. We try and write a book in the month of November. Um, and it's essentially what it is. It's just one book, standalone, not part of a series. It's kind of a flip on The Little Mermaid where, you know, it's a female mermaid who discovers a prince and falls in love and then wants to be part of the real world. It, it, it's kind of a reverse of that and it's much more sci-fi um, than anything else, I guess you could say, within the mermaid, merman genre. It, it's kind of a spin on the creature from The Black Lagoon. That's that's kind of what it's a riff on. In the same way, Who's Afraid is a bit of a riff on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but with a woman and werewolves. Um, and so it's set on the Gold Coast, because if you're going to do a merman story, what what more perfect place to do than the Gold Coast? And yeah, it's it's been around for a while. Like there's publishers that are interested in it and everyone, you know, plays that. It's like a really stupid game of poker where everybody sits on their hands and waits to see what the other person does. And they wait to see, you know, who's afraid is going well. And so they wait to see how the next one goes or what happens with adapting it into something else. So it's kind of just sitting there waiting for someone to make a move. So when do you think you hit that critical mass? Is it, do you think it's never? <laughs> is it going to be like, like, as you said, the second book, uh, ultimately, you bring with you an audience. Yeah. And then you've got the opportunity to expand and bring more people to the table. And then it gets easier to pitch new projects as you um, move along. I don't know. I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm, super, I'm super early, you know. Like, I'm super – I'm right at the beginning of my career with this. Like, I want to do this for a living. I, I have a daytime – or it's actually a nighttime job. But I, I work on the feed at SBS, which is a, a live TV show, which goes live to air um, four nights a week for – for a year and that is a really really tough job to do because if you stuff up during the day there's a blank slot going to air that night so live tv is a really tough gig and it takes a lot out of you and it's very draining and then doing the book stuff on the side is really tough and trying to fit in things with with touring and stuff like that as well it's it's super tough but for me I, I want to get to the point one day where I could do the book thing full time and they say that you know the average yearly income for an author in Australia is eight grand, <laughs> which is not enough to live off at all. Unless, you know, you lived in maybe uh, Tasmania. Um, it's, that's a very small wage. And they say it takes 10 books for you to be able to make a living off it, you know, that you could do it full time. I have one book out at the moment. You know, I have two um, segments and anthologies out as well with Harp Collins and uh, Queensland University of Queensland Press. Obviously, the second book's about to come out, and so eventually that stuff will roll on. When you reach critical mass, I don't know. Um, I feel like that's a long way off, you know? Like, I feel it's a long way off before you can be comfortable and relax into this Is that a good situation. thing, though? Is that a good thing because it keeps driving you to work harder? I think it's always important to be hungry. Um, I, I don't know. Success, oh, 
like it depends how you define success, doesn't it? Because I'm I'm super I like Who's Afraid is as successful as I could possibly hope it to be. You know, it's done as well as it possibly could have in Australia. I mean, we're going to America, like that's freaking crazy to me. The book's releasing there, both books are releasing there. That's nuts. It's doing really well in the UK. It's in Turkey, you know, they just had a coup. And like someone's like, Oh hey, cool, let's have this werewolf book, you know? Like it's going as well as it possibly could. So it's super successful. Um, and the second book hopefully will build on that audience and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the other series I write, hopefully there'll be interest. But I think the point for me is that the people that, like we mentioned earlier about people that you admire, the comic book writers and artists and creators that I really like is even when they are successful, they keep striving. They keep doing stuff. They keep thirsty like brian k vaughan who i think is one of the greatest writers of all time he did saga why the last man um paper girls at the moment he's he, also written for lost and uh, that stack of TV. He's, he's genuinely absolutely ridiculous just if you just look at his comic book work alone you're just like those stories are iconic right and he's someone that's always putting out work he's someone that's that's always working and so i think um for me whether I'm successful or I'm a failure, that's not going to stop the fact that I have stories that I want to try and tell. You know, that's not going to stop the ideas coming. It might maybe change the ideas or shape the ideas, but I have so many stories that I want to get out and that I've, you know, plotted and researched and done preliminary interviews for that I'm ready to try and get out there. So, I mean, when do you reach critical mass? I have no idea. I don't, I don't think you ever do in some regard. Like, okay, obviously JK Rowling's reached critical mass. But you know how many how many hugely famous and successful authors are there out there? Like maybe a handful, you know. Even Matthew Riley, someone who's very 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 successful, um, that's kind of his career is sort of like a dream career. How many people get to that point? Not very many. So um, I've always kind of felt like an underdog in this industry. I've always felt like Who's Afraid is the little book that could. And every time it keeps breaking over a threshold, it surprises me and I get delighted by it. And I never want to expect things. I th yeah, I think that's really important. How much confidence did it take to initially start writing to then share that writing with others? <laughs> and, <Zero>. and, perhaps, <laughs> and And how did that change when you, you visited your first, I think it was Comic-Con, mm. on assignment back around yeah. 2006, 2007, something like that? Damn, you're good, man. And I don't think anyone has researched me this thoroughly. <laughs> God damn. Like, I, you know, I've had articles in, like, the Daily Telegraph and SFX magazine in the UK, and I still don't think anyone's researched me this thoroughly. It's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> how did it change when you landed at Comic-Con and saw other young writers? So, I mean, you talk about confidence. I didn't really, like, it wasn't something that I didn't have. I was just writing very different stuff. And so I write, started writing Who's Afraid when I was working full-time at the Gold Coast Bulletin. I just transitioned over from writing crime. I was doing, like, my last few shifts on the crime shift and was writing more about film and things like that. And at the time, I'd just gotten back from a trip to Egypt and I was researching an idea for a graphic novel I had, which was kind of like a combination of Egyptian mythology and X-Men. And um, I was doing all this research for it, like I usually do, do heaps of groundwork and then, you know, carry on with the story after that. Uh, the same way I would write a feature article. Um, and I just had this, like, this character just like strut into my head. And that character was Tommy Grayson. And I kind of, she wouldn't go away. She like kept hanging around there. And so I had to invent a world around her. 
Um, and that's how Who's Afraid started. And so I started writing it kind of like chapter by chapter at the time. I wrote the first four chapters and then I went over to the US to cover San Diego Comic-Con. Um, and I covered the Breaking Dawn part one press conference, right? So this is like 2009, I think. I think that's when that movie came out. Um, and the way they did it was, um, and you know, this is the biggest movie in the world at the time. So I was super excited. And what they did was really smart is they get all the press in this huge room. They lock you in there. So you can't leave for three hours. And what they do is they wheel out an author whose property they've bought that they're adapting. And so this whole room of disinterested journalists has to interview that writer for 20 minutes. Then that writer goes away and they bring out three supporting cast members of the movie. Then those cast members go away. They bring out another writer, three more cast members higher up on the totem pole to eventually you get to, it was Kristen Stewart, Taylor Lautner, Robert Pattinson and Bill Condon who directed the movie. Um, and so the writers that year that they wheeled out was Veronica Roth, who did the Divergent? Awesome. Um, Isaac Marion from Warm Bodies, and I forget the name, but the person who wrote The Night Circus. And so those were the three authors. And I had this kind of misconception that you, there was a rule in the industry that you had to be over thirty to get a book published. Like you weren't allowed to have a book published unless you were like minimum thirty. And at the time, I was like twenty-two, so I was just like, yeah, that's out for me. That I was twenty-one, twenty-one, twenty-two. I was like, yeah, that, that is just not going to happen to me. And then out rolled these authors who were like, Veronica's very young. She was like 24 at the time, I think. And Isaac was like 28. And the Night Circus author too was very young, about like 32, 33. And I was like, damn, these people are really young and have done it. Maybe I could give this a, sh a shot. And so at the end of Comic-Con, um, after I'd finished covering the event for a week on the plane ride from LA back to, back to Brisbane, I rewrote the first four chapters that I had of Who's Afraid because they were they read like a, a news article where you have the most important piece of information at the top and then everything in descending order. So they were terrible and I didn't know how to write a book. So I'd just written it like the way I knew how to write regular stuff. And so I was rewriting them to try and make it like well, a feature. sort of a long, like a werewolf and found in the woods today. Kind of, like kind of, not in that like newsy voice that you have. That's very good newsy <laughs> voice, but it was definitely like trying to like get people in with the most important piece of information. Of course, that's not how you do it with a book. You've got to be a little bit more patient. And so I rewrote those first four chapters and then I gave them to a friend of mine um, at the newspaper who, whose name was Bridie Jabour, who now is a political journalist at The Guardian. And we were both, we, we'd known each other since um, I was 16 and she was 17 or 18 because we both started in police rounds at the Gold Coast Bulletin together. So she read the first four chapters and then her sister, who was um, working for a very famous politician at the time, read them as well. And they both loved them. And we're like, where's the next one? Where's the next chapter? And that really surprised me because, A, they don't read a lot of genre stuff at all. So I thought by giving it to them, if they liked it, then it maybe meant that I should, you know, keep going. And if I could get them into it, maybe I could get other people into it. Second of all, they have a, both have a very keen eye in terms of being able to pick up um, mistakes and areas and attention to detail and story holes and all that kind of thing. Um, and they both loved it. So I wrote the whole book um, chapter by chapter where I would write it out, print it in a hard copy because I was paranoid about someone getting a digital version and then giving them the hard paper chapter and then being like, where's the next one? Where's the next one? Eventually I got to the end of, uh, end of the book and they were like, we really think you need to, to get this out there. You need to try and get an agent and get it published. And if it wasn't for the two of them, the Jabor sisters saying to me that I should really try and, you know, get an agent and get it published. 
you wouldn't have a copy of Who's Afraid in your hands right now because it was kind of something that I was doing as a project to myself to see if I could finish this person's story and get this idea and this character out of my head and just to see if I could do it, first of all. And um, and then that was that was kind of it. From there we started, we used to have like brainstorming meetings about how I could try and get in front of agents and do up like postal packages and all this kind of thing. And um, And that's how Who's Afraid ended up becoming a beast was really through through their encouragement. I do want to change gears for a moment because we're yeah. running a little long, but this yes. is an important question. With a female protagonist, there's always the threat of sexual violence, mm. more so than there ever is when it's a character like James Bond yeah. or otherwise. Yeah. In this book, though, there is, again, the threat of sexual mm-hmm. violence, but you take the time to actually address the impacts of that threat and the, and the act of sexual violence upon the individual that it occurs. How important was that to you to include in this first story? Vital. And I think um, I think one of the things that's interesting is I understand why people push back about this, about, you know, sexual violence and things like that being included in the pop culture they consume or whatever. But from a female perspective, that's a personal experience. Women experience this on a ridiculously terrifying level. One in three women have experienced sexual violence. So we add one more person, two more ladies to this room, and one of the three of us has experienced sexual violence. I found those stats to be a little bit higher among the women that I know and the women that I meet and my circle of friends. And so it was it was a story about women from a woman's perspective from women who have gone through this shit. And that's why I thought it was important to be included and not so much, um, I mean, I don't want to spoil stuff for the book, but things don't necessarily go the way that you would expect them in that traditional narrative of a woman gets attacked. It it doesn't amount to that. And the revenge fantasy is very literal, (laughs) I guess, as things roll out, because I think that's the fantasy that I personally have had, you know, that you, you just want to go out and get revenge and, you know, destroy the person who's hurt and attacked you and, and taken away your confidence and taken away your, your self-esteem and your pride and giving you, you know, terrible sense of shame that you have no right to feel. Um, And so dealing with the aftermath of that, I think was really important because, um, there's sort of common misconception, uh, I guess, largely amongst amongst men or amongst the media when things like this happen. Oh, this terrible thing has happened. You go through some stuff and then you get over it. And that's not necessarily the case. Post-traumatic stress disorder manifests in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And I thought it was interesting to deal with that with Tommy in particular because she's a werewolf. So she has these terrible anger management issues and these terrible issues of control and this kind of ferocity. And she's someone who has kind of always considered herself a hero in a way, in the way that she finds people that are weaker than her and kind of takes them under her wing and befriends them and protects them. And she considers herself heroic in the ways that she's loyal and compassion and uh, compassionate and emotional Um, towards her friends and her family and the people she cares about. And then she finds out she's actually a villain in terms of the traditional idea of what a monster is and how do you reconcile those two elements of yourself. And so that was one of the things I thought was really important. I also, um, when I was in high school, I read the Jessica Jones uh, graphic novel for the first time and by Brian Michael Bendis, and I thought it was extraordinary. And I hadn't seen that 
that kind of woman and that kind of story told in a platform like that before. And I loved it and I thirsted for it. And so I started trying to seek out those other kind of stories that had elements of that sort of experience. Because again, like I said, I think the best fantasy is stuff that's grounded in reality and women deal with this kind of bullshit on an everyday basis. And so I, I, you know, from people who've experienced that kind of thing, um, who've read the book and have come up to me and spoken to about it and stuff, it's been it's been very interesting to gauge their responses and um, and how they've how they've reacted to it. Um, so yeah, I guess it's probably important to say trigger warning if um, if you know sexual violence and and that kind of thing is um, is harmful for your emotional or physical state. Um, there is that kind of stuff discussed in the first Who's Afraid and throughout the rest of the series as more of um, one big ripple and the ramifications of that as it kind of manifests through the rest of her life. But I've got to say, reading it, and what I really took from it was that it was a very respectful demonstration of that post-traumatic stress event. I think it depends, again, on the creator. Um, I mean, I can only, like, I'm sure this is going to be, I'm sure there will be people who will read Who's Afraid and be like, I feel like this, the way they've done this is disrespectful, or I find the way she's done this, dealing with PTSD, post-sexual violence, offensive, or whatever, and that's, you know, fair play to them you cannot uh you you cannot like guard or judge someone's offense how someone reacts to a thing is how they react to it and that's their genuine response to it i wrote about it from a personal place of personal experience and my personal feelings and personal reactions as well as the experiences of my girlfriends and how they have gone through things and so it's kind of uh, a mishmash, I guess, of a lot of our personal experiences and how we we wanted to see things talked about and examined. Um, and so I think, it, honestly, a lot of times when I've seen sexual assault handled in pop culture where I've had a negative reaction to it, largely it's been because um, the creator has come from a place where they have never had not, – I'm not saying you have to personally experience this kind of thing, but they haven't had a personal connection to it. It's been a man – who a white straight man maybe who's who's never experienced that kind of threat or that kind of fear or who's never had to live with the idea of like you having to walk home alone at night with keys wedged between your knuckles because you know the odds are that someone is whether it's today or tomorrow or next year or next month or next decade someone is going to try and attack you at some point because that's unfortunately just the way the world is and women are that kind of like sense of fear and that kind of defense is bred into you because that's how you survive as a woman. And so the times when I've responded to it positively or the times where I've thought that, you know, they've handled something really well is usually because there's been a personal story or a female creator that has interwoven a sense of authenticity into it where it's felt realistic, where it's felt like that, that is the way, somebody would deal with things and there's no one way someone deals with things you know however you deal with things is how you deal with things look at all the different ways people deal with breakups you know all the different ways people deal with grief how you deal with it is how you deal with it um but that was the point is i wanted to show somebody dealing with it rather than this happened move on to the next event well maria who's afraid the first book is out now second by the time this is out is will be out as well who's afraid to t-o-o or as my mother would say who's afraid as well <laughs> that's a third book no, <laughs> the third book will be called who's still afraid i think 
last summer. <laughs> it's it's a bold, passionate piece of work. It is fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I don't read urban fantasy <laughs> at all. That's um, good, man. That's so what I'm trying to do. It's it, going to be the gateway drug. It actually has been. I've now gone off and bought a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> good. Um, so, look, Maria, congratulations on the book. All the very best for the, the next in the five. Yes, yeah. And I look forward to seeing the merman when he arrives as well. Oh, I can't wait for you to meet him. (laughs) Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. And you can find the Who's Afraid series in stores online and, more importantly, right now in America. So follow Maria on Twitter at MovieMaz and please follow us, Conversations with Writers, at ConversationsWW or on Facebook. This is James Rickards. Thank you very much for listening.